Hi, this is Jingmu Sherpa, Veterans Matters Program Coordinator at the Medical Society of the State of New York. I am joined today by Dr. David Podwall, who is involved in MISNI's Veterans Matters Program and Planning Committee. Dr. Podwall is a board-certified neurologist specializing in neuromuscular diseases. This discussion will focus on mild TBI in returning veterans, since it is more common in the military and among veterans, and often goes undiagnosed. This discussion will also help physicians identify and diagnose mild TBI and discuss prevention and treatment options that are available. How common is TBI in veterans, and what are some of the main causes? Well, first, I think it's good to start with how do we define TBI? TBI, traumatic brain injury, is caused by a blow, jolt, or penetrating injury resulting in normal disruption and disruption in the normal functioning in the brain. It is extremely common in the general population. In 2010, over 50,000 people died as a result of TBI, over a quarter million hospitalizations. But in the military, it's especially high. From 2000 to 2013, nearly 300,000 service members had sustained TBI, and 10 to 20% of those who served in in the operations in both Afghanistan and Iraq also suffered from such injuries. The reason it's much higher is because what's different in the military population is that 75% of these casualties are caused by explosions. So you have these very strong explosive devices that unfortunately they encounter, and those cause both higher rates of TBI as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. New York physicians will be seeing military service members or veterans well after their deployment overseas, and they may be trying to identify mild TBI weeks to months, even years after the injury. When looking back, what are some signs or symptoms that can help physicians to identify traumatic brain injury? Well, I think we have to first think about it, right? We have to ask the questions, especially specific questions to military veterans. Did you have any injuries during your deployment from things such as fragments or bullets or explosive devices? Did any of the injury received while you deployed result in the following symptoms, being confused and dazed, memory loss, certainly loss of consciousness? And then asking about common symptoms that one would see after head injury or concussion, such as headaches, vestibular or dizziness issues, memory problems, emotional issues. So those would be signs and symptoms. Are there assessment tools available to physicians in helping diagnose TBI? Physicians who work with veterans should know that there are tools that are sometimes used by the military, and if they have those records that are helpful, one of them is called the MACE evaluation. It stands for the Military Acute Concussion Evaluation, which is really an evaluation done soon after the event to get a sense of the severity of the score. And if you have that information when you see them, and sometimes you would be able to obtain that information, they may know it, or you may be able to get it from records, that would give you a sense of what they are. But the assessments that we use as neurologists are, again, a lot of the same assessments you would use in your regular population. It's a history specifically to the symptoms that they have, which we'll discuss later, and also a careful neurological examination. Questions about looking at memory as part of the examination, cranial nerve evaluation, looking for the motor examination, coordination, looking for evidence of vestibular dysfunction as part of all of a comprehensive neurological examination, which I think are tools which all physicians have, but we need to use them on those patients because if you don't look for things, you often won't find them. 
Can you comment on the value of being able to talk with someone who knows a veteran before their service or deployment when assessing for possible history of mild TBI? Well, I think in this way, military veterans are a lot like physicians. We as physicians tend to downplay our own symptoms. And I think a lot of military people do the same. Plus, a lot of times their TBI symptoms are in the setting of other things as well, physical injuries that they had, post-traumatic stress disorder, which they had. So it can be hard to tease them out. So speaking to someone who knew them before, before that time, and it may be a spouse, but it may be a friend or a colleague who knew them beforehand, because you may have someone who was extremely high functioning before this happened, and now they come to see you and they can have conversation and talk to you. But when you dig in, you realize that someone who was studying in a master's program in biology and was working at a very high level is now sometimes having problems making change at the diner. And so if you really don't ask where they are now, but also where they were from people who knew them before the injuries happened, if that is possible, you won't have a true sense of their level of functioning and the changes that occurred. And without knowing that, it's very hard to treat. What are some of the common comorbidities seen in veterans with a history of TBI? And how can these comorbidities affect the patient's response to treatment? Their TBI increases the risk for many psychiatric complications. These can include depression, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, aggression, violent behaviors, or even suicide. So I think that we need to ask about those things in such patients because, again, they're more common than they otherwise would be. And if you don't ask, you will not know. Now, obviously, how this affects response to treatment, well, if you don't know about those issues and you can't treat them, then working with those patients will be harder. So that's why if you find out about someone as a neurologist, if I see someone with traumatic brain injury, but I see that they have a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, those people, I would try to get them hooked up with mental health professional psychiatrists, those who specialize in that area. Because if those areas aren't treated, it's going to be much harder for me to treat mine. Plus, some of the treatments that we use can overlap, and you want to make sure that all members of the treatment team are on the same page. What treatment options are offered to patients? Are some more effective than others? You have to look at the different manifestations of traumatic brain injury because those are going to have different treatments. So those that are going to see us in the community, a lot of those symptoms actually are going to be very similar to symptoms you'll see in the general population to those who have head injury and concussion. So what could those be? The first is is certainly, I think the more common that I would see is headaches. A lot of these patients have headaches. And treatment options for headache patients start with lifestyle modifications because a lot of these patients changing their lifestyles will help. That's including their sleeping patterns and limiting the intake of over-the-counter analgesia. A lot of these people are taking so much Tylenol and Advil because it's available, but that can cause a rebound phenomenon. The same with caffeine. So asking about those issues. But a lot of these people have chronic headache and there are medications that we use. These are generally those that were approved for chronic migraine, but we use it for all chronic headaches. The most common is going to be tapiramate and another anti-seizure that sometimes used is uh, gabapentin. Antidepressants are often used most commonly tricyclics, such as amitriptyline, or I prefer because there's somewhat less side effects, nortriptyline, otherwise known as Pamelor. 
There are newer agents on the market that are the CRGP, such as Amovig and AgeV, but generally most people start with oral medications first. So that those are the medications that we use for chronic migraine can definitely help these patients. The next comment is dizziness, vestibular disorders, which you could further evaluate with tests like electronystagmograms. And those patients often have headaches. And if you treat the headaches, the dizziness gets better. So these things are commonly overlap. But often I find those patients may improve with vestibular rehab. Either you give them exercises at home or they go to a physical therapist who does that. And sometimes that can have traumatic improvement. Memory. Memory is a common complaint. These patients are not appropriate for the medicines we use to treat memory disorders such as Alzheimer's. First of all, I think what with those patients is that you need to recognize that what they're having is real, that we see it all the time, because a lot of people don't want to talk about their memory disorders. And then you want to talk about how you treat other things they have, such as headaches and dizziness, will help the memory. If their sleeping gets better, that will help the memory. And also trying to avoid medications that can make it worse such as sedatives or hypnotics. People start taking a lot of Ativan or things like that. That can affect their memory. And there are cognitive behavioral techniques can be used. There are places that we can refer patients for cognitive therapy, and that also could be helpful. And again, this all has to be done. A lot of these patients are having common psychiatric issues, depression, anxiety, and that's where working together as a team. So if we say have someone with depression and headaches, then starting an antidepressant such as amitriptyline or nortriptyline may be helpful in both regards, and that also can help someone with sleep. So it's putting their, all the pieces together. These are many of the tools that we have. A lot of people benefit when they have all these things from group psychotherapy or family therapy to try to put their pieces together. I think a lot of people feel better when they can talk to other people. How did you get through this? And there are a lot of resources out there, especially resources for veterans that can help them with it. So it has to be a holistic approach. There are things we can do. We just have to put the pieces together and work with the patient in this process. People can get better, but this is not something that's instantaneous. It does take some time and effort. What factors can affect recovery rates in patients? Those who immediately after having the event has tremendous amount of symptoms very quickly can be a little overwhelming. Those with history of prior concussions, TBI, we've known that often the effects can be somewhat additive onto each other. And certainly if someone has prior neurological or psychiatric issues, that plays a role. So if you have a history of someone with chronic migraines, then it would not be surprising that person would have worse headaches after a concussion. The same goes for psychiatric issues, mood disorders as well as sleep disorders. So those, if pre-existing, could all make treatments worse. And then there are issues that are more socioeconomic, such as whether they have social supports, economic issues, if there's a lot of significant life stressors at home. And then there's things related to the actual problem itself, such as those related to high impact velocity. Impacts may take longer to get worse. And then certainly those who there's a small subsection who may have a litigation or compensation related issues that also may complicate this. So there's a lot of different factors that can prolong someone's recovery. How does TBI affect a patient's day-to-day behavior or lifestyle? 
This is very individual based on the person, the type of injury they have, the severity of injury, and the type of symptoms they have. But I think that we need to be cognizant of these changes. It's very easy to see if someone can't use their right arm, how that affects their lifestyle. But it's much more difficult to see that if someone has mild cognitive issues, how that affects them, how that makes it harder for them to do a job or to use an ATM or to juggle their checkbook and not get into financial difficulties. So it can affect people in very subtle ways. It also can affect behavior in subtle ways. And that's going back to a previous question we're asking about their previous level of functioning. You may have someone who is unable to handle the stresses of routine life that we all have as well as they did prior. So a lot of times these effects are subtle but when you add them together, they can be quite significant. And therefore, when we take, again, the history, you have to ask these sort of questions. And often just acknowledging those problems exist and then setting goals to try to make them better, often people do feel that they're making some progress. So again, it always goes to the point that if you don't ask about a problem, you're not going to know about it. What steps can be taken to prevent further injury? There are two ways to look at this question. One is in the acute setting where someone comes to see you right after a head injury, where there are general guidelines that we follow is when can someone return to work or return to a combat role. And that often depends on the symptoms that they're having, resolution of those symptoms, and the gradual increasing level of activity to see whether those symptoms return. That is very helpful probably with more our civilian patients. But in our military population, we're going to be seeing people much later on. So that's not going to be the issue for us. It's really going to be more, I believe, the overlap between things such as traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. So if we don't, again, ask the questions about their lifestyle, about anger, about emotional changes, personality changes, we won't pick up on those issues and therefore would be remiss and not send them for appropriate treatment and evaluation. So I think the steps we take to prevent further injury means that we take a comprehensive look at all these issues and make sure that we address them. Because if we don't, unfortunately, it can manifest and get worse over time. Dr. Podwall, thank you so much for your time and for providing the information on the topic. And thank you to our listeners. If you would like more information about any of the topics discussed here, please go to MISNI's CME website at cme.misni.org and look under resources. Additionally, there are several Veterans Matters webinars archived there. These programs provide participants with one free CME credit for each program.